morning, everybody. Welcome to Hogwarts. We have gone full send here this morning on getting everything ready as we are finishing up our Harry Potter series. And so I'm super thankful that you're here today. I'm super glad that we get to experience this together, um, this whole magic. And so um, I want to jump right into this because uh, this is so fun of an experience. One of the questions that I have, and you can vote right now if you have our app. We have a live poll. If you don't have our app, um, you can download it. Uh, well, you can text it, our text number, 844-506-4637. If you want to text to get our app, there's a live poll. But what I wanted to know is, who is the greatest wizard, in your opinion? What do you think? Who do you think is the greatest wizard? Harry Potter. Harry Potter, okay. Who do you think is the greatest wizard? Dumbledore. Dumbledore. Now, there are some other wizards from other realms, I happen to think Gandalf the Grey is the greatest wizard. That's kind of my opinion. That's me, Gandalf, thou shall not pass, man. That is, that is such a wizard right there. There's also those of you whose greatest wizards are all Jedis, right? Are you there? The Jedi people, right? So uh, if you can, you can go vote right now. We're going to do this live vote. Is Who is the greatest wizard in your opinion? Is it A, Albus Dumbledore? Is it B, Gandalf, or is it C, my favorite wizards are all Jedis? So I'm going to give you just a couple, a couple, a few more seconds to log in and do this if you can. So is it A, Albus Dumbledore, B, Gandalf the Grey, or White, you know, if you go to Return of the King, and then uh, C, the entire Star Wars universe who says, my favorite wizards are all Jedi. So I'm going to place my vote right now for Gandalf. And the answers are, oh, man, you Dumbledore people came in at the last second. So 42% say Albus Dumbledore is the greatest wizard ever. 27% say that Gandalf is the greatest wizard. And 30% say that my favorite wizards are all Jedi's. Now, Gandalf was leading all week long, and I felt really good about it. But um, apparently, you all have spoken, and the greatest wizard is actually um, Albus Dumbledore, which is great, because that's really what we're talking about today. What we want to go into with this Harry Potter series, and, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at the deeper magic and the deeper wisdom found in the J.K. Rowling series, Harry Potter, um, that actually kind of comes from the Bible. There's about three parts in this Harry Potter franchise where, for whatever reason, J.K. Rowling sneaks um, scriptures from the Bible. But first, I want to ask you, I want to ask some of you kids, what's the greatest wisdom you have ever received? Do you have any great wisdom? And don't eat yellow snow isn't wisdom, it's common sense. So we're going to reach higher today. We're going to retire today. What's the greatest wisdom that you've ever gotten? I'll take anybody. Who's got some good wisdom to share? Right here. What do you got? Come here, Quinn. What do you got? What's your great wisdom? When I broke my ribs at the hospital for the fifth, fourth time in my life. What was, and the wisdom was? Uh, that God would take care of me. That God would take care of me. So no matter what happens, God will take care of me. What other wisdom? Anybody have any wisdom or advice? You got some, Garrett? You got some? Okay, we're trying to figure out what wisdom is. Mm, you're on the right path, young Padawan. All right, what do you got, Reese? When I was a baby and um, I fell head first into the window and I had to go to the hospital. 
that's awesome. <laughs> don't fall head first. If you're going to go into a window, don't go head first. Okay, that's the wisdom out of that. All right. You young sir, what's your wisdom to share? Great Yoda is. Great Yoda is. Okay, do we got anything? Anything else? I'll take anything at this point, guys. The bar is real low here. I can remember being in college and having uh, a slightly, a year older, I was a freshman and had a sophomore college student. His name um, was Marcellus Casey, and he was kind of the first guy to, to mentor me in, in what it looked like to follow Jesus. And I can remember him saying this, and a lot of good wisdom sayings, they're just short little quips, right? They're pithy, they're rememberable, right? Like they stick with you. And so Marcellus Casey, he said this to me, um, I was a freshman, maybe a sophomore in college, he was a year older than me, and he said, Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. That whole fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And just the way he said it, and what, it just got me thinking. It got me thinking, what does that mean? How do I, what does that really look like? And so wisdom, they're, they're, it's pithy, it sticks with you, and, and it's meant to guide you and direct you. There's something about real wisdom that's deep. It's like deep waters. And, and we have to ponder it, and we have to work it out. See, I think Dumbledore's called the greatest wizard who ever lived, by Hagrid at least, and by a lot of you, is because we, Dumbledore was in touch with a deeper kind of magic. He had a wisdom that came from understanding the deeper things in life and the deeper things beyond life. He might even have what's called an eternal perspective. Dumbledore was someone who lived seeing a bigger picture of reality that went beyond just physical reality. And even in that whole world of, 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 of magic, there was still a deeper magic that went beyond just these surface-level incantations. He really knew people's hearts, and he really had a connection with eternity and what exists below the surface, which is what I think we want in life. We want a deeper kind of magic. We want a deeper meaning, a deeper purpose. We want to know that there's something going on behind the scenes that we can't quite see, but, but has us, that has us in its plans and won't forsake us, won't forget us. And so um, what we're going to look at, and I mentioned this earlier, are just three of the times J.K. Rowling sneaks some verses from the Bible into this whole franchise. And we're going to look at the deeper magic that's represented here. And the first piece of deeper magic that we're going to look at today is this magic, this deeper magic, where Dumbledore says, happiness can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. It's my favorite movie, The Prisoner of Azkaban. That's the one where, you know, they kind of progress these, these stories, the books, movie to movie. They get a little more progressive because they're written to an audience that was growing up with the books. And so as the books mature, the story matures as the readers mature. And that is found in the third book, kind of act three of a seven-part act. And what's happening is things are starting to get darker. Again, the story is maturing, the plot is thickening, the readers are maturing up into it. And so J.K. Rowling starts to weave things a little bit more darker. 
things get a little scarier as you get as you get reading into it it gets a little more complex the evil gets a little more real within it and i think actually this is pretty wise because we have to acknowledge that there's real darkness in the world there's really bad things and I think it's even good to, to, to figure out a way to let our kids to acknowledge that, to acknowledge that there's real pain, there's real suffering, there's real darkness, there's things that aren't as they should be. On a big scale, we have all these big wars and these big diseases, things like racism and oppression. We have a lot of big evils in this world. But there's also just personal darkness and personal tragedy that we all have to figure out a way to work through. We have to deal with really big personal pains in this life. And I love how, how this series isn't just good young adult literature. It's just plain good literature. Because what it does is it gives you, if you're the reader, a young person or an adult person, it gives you a sense of empowerment. It gives you a sense that if I really want to, if I really believe in what's good... I can fight back. And our kids need that. And, and we need that. We have to model that in our society that yes, darkness is real, but we can, we can fight it. We're agents. We have a choice so that our kids see us fighting evil, fighting darkness. But I love what Dumbledore does he says, even though things are, things are dark right now, even though we have these things of, they call dementors that are surrounding Hogwarts that are really embodiments of darkness, darkness. He says, one can fight if one only remembers to turn on the light. Because what tool is the right tool for darkness? What do you use when you're in a dark spot? Shout it out. Light. light. You walk into a dark room. You could walk into this room. And you see all these obstacles here? If I come in that door over there, there are plenty of obstacles to get to that light over there. So I got to take out my flashlight, right? I got to have the right tool because those posts, they don't move. No matter how hard you put your face into them, they don't move. So you need light to fight the darkness. And this is what the disciple John records. In the very opening of his book, the Gospel of John, he was a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. He witnessed Jesus do amazing, incredible things. And so as he's opening this gospel, and, and these gospels, I would love it if we approach these, these things called the gospels, not just as fables, not just as storybooks, but as eyewitness reports recorded by people who lived with Jesus, and who wrote down what they saw. And so John, in chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, the disciple John says this. He's referring to Jesus when he says the word, but he says, The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. John, if you were somebody who had never heard of Jesus... And you came across this book, this, this, this account from a Jesus follower, and you were to read it. One of the very first things that John wants you to know 
that John wants all of us to get is that in the beginning there was this word of life who became flesh and who was a light to the world, a light so bright, so focused, so intense, so withstanding that no darkness could ever put it out. See, Jesus lived a life of bringing light into the dark corners and spaces of the world. And so when we read these eyewitness reports and these eyewitness accounts of Jesus, and we see him walking into a situation where there's a leper, like in Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus not just healing somebody physically, but we see Jesus bringing light into a dark corner of emotional brokenness. Because I can't imagine being a leper, being someone who was literally deteriorating physically, cut off socially, and disintegrating spiritually. Because their soul was so cut off from human interaction and human people, the darkness there would be completely overwhelming. But we see Jesus live a life of touching the unclean, restoring them socially, emotionally, spiritually, bringing light to their dark corner of the world. I think about in John 5, how Jesus interacts with um, someone who was uh, disabled at a pool, paralyzed and unable to walk and unable to do anything about his situation. I think about the darkness that comes with personal disability of any kind. How that is a darkness I don't know about. That is a dark corner that I haven't experienced. But how dark that would be and how to wrestle with that and how to make a life without giving up hope. And so what we see is Jesus, again, bringing his light into that particular dark corner and restoring an individual. We see Jesus a couple times in the Bible, um, in, in Mark 5, he, he goes into the room, he goes into the home of someone who has lost a child. And, and she's died, she's passed away, and the father's just grief-stricken. And Jesus walks into there, and he says, Talitha kum, which means, honey, get up. Sweetie, just get up. And so even the darkest of dark situations, what we think of as death, the ultimate darkness, Jesus even overcame the darkness of his own death. We see a light that can never be put out. Jesus is showing us that because he is the ultimate light, we can have real joy, real happiness, even in the darkest of times when one only remembers to look to that light source. I think of this uh, a little bit, and maybe you'll go with me here on this, a little bit as the Mahomes effect. How many of you remember when our hopes rested on quarterbacks like Matt Castle? Who remembers the 2-14 and 14 Romeo Cornell season? If you don't, you are just blessed. Our children are so spoiled to grow up in a world of Kansas City sports with Patrick Mahomes, couple World Series. You'll learn one day what it's like. But I'm just thinking about those, these runs that we've had, right? Or especially with Mahomes in the game, like there's a certain sense of like, you know what, we can come back. It didn't always used to be that way. When we got down, it was like, let's see what else is on TV. But now, 
We want to keep watching. We want to wait till the very end because we know Patrick Mahomes can put that ball wherever it needs to go on the field at any given time, and there's a chance. One could say, in those situations, we have put our hope in him. Our hope isn't in ourselves in that situation. Our hope isn't even in, you know, Andy Reid at a certain point, even though as great as he is. Our hope is in a certain individual who has a certain skill set, a certain ability to do something to rectify and remedy the situation. That's the same kind of thing. We can take that same mentality in how we approach Jesus. Where we're not just putting our hope in ourselves and our human effort. We're not trying to put our hope in somebody else and their skill set and what they can do for us to make our lives better. We can actually learn to live putting our hope in Jesus because he has a skill set, he has a power that can shine a light into any dark corner. I think for us to experience real, unshakable joy and to get to that deeper kind of magic and to understand that it's a real thing that actually exists that we can put our hope and life in means being willing to go through inky, pitch-black darkness. We have to be willing to let the lights go out to find the one light that will never go out. Even my personal darkest moments have been moments that have ultimately led me to say, I can count on Jesus and nothing else. Our darkness teaches us where to look. There's nothing more valuable in this world than learning that the one thing that will never disappoint us and never fail us is a relationship with God. Jesus. But we have to know where to look. When we're dark, we have to know where to look. We will never learn that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. And the darkness can teach us that, which is extremely valuable. That's wisdom. Now, our second piece of deeper magic comes when Dumbledore comes across Harry when Harry has found a very mysterious and strange mirror. I love that. It does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. See, what he's peering into is, is the mirror of Erised, which is just desire spelled backwards. That's all it is. First book, we're putting the cookies on the lower shelf. The mirror of Erised is just desire spelled backwards. And when you peer into it, you see the deepest desires of your heart. And so Harry, who has never known his parents, whose parents were killed tragically um, before he could remember them, when he looks into that, what's he longing for? He's longing, his deepest desire of his heart is to be connected, to have the warmth of a touch, the warmth of an embrace, the affirmation that comes with that. He's had none of that relationship with his parents to, to bring him up. And so when Harry sees into it, he sees the deepest desire of his heart, which is a relationship with his parents. He brings his friend Ron, Ronald Weasley, who's a different bloke. Harry, when, uh, when, when Ron stands in front of the mirror of Erised, Ron sees himself winning the Quidditch Cup. 
He sees fame and fortune. He sees himself being hoisted on his shoulders because for Ron, that's what he wanted. That was his deepest desire. And there's nothing wrong with that. We all have different desires that we think if we were to get those things, if those circumstances or those things were to happen in life, if we were to get those, then we'd be happy. That's what we think. And Dumbledore warns that people have wasted away in front of that mirror. People have gone mad in front of that mirror because they dwell on all the things they think that if I get those things, then I'll really have what I want. And I was thinking about what a modern day reflection, what a reflection of the world we live in, especially if our modern day mirror of Irised is our phone or a TV screen, how we can stare at a piece of glass for hours, having it reflect back to us what our deepest desires are by what we watch, what we buy, what we scroll through, and how we can get lost and even go mad as we stare into this modern-day mirror of Irised that keeps us living in a fantasy world instead of being present to the real world right in front of us. Why do we spend so much time treasuring fantasy over reality? Why are we spending so much energy pursuing our dream worlds and our dream life versus being present and content with the lives we've been given? And why do we tend to live lives where we always feel like we need more of something to feel content? Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Jesus says, Don't store up treasures here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. I'm going to read that last line again. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. That verse is actually a verse that comes later in the series and that Dumbledore puts on the tombstone of his sister. When Dumbledore was younger, he had a family, he had a brother, he had a sister, and his sister died a young, tragic death. And when Harry and Hermione um, come across a a graveyard, we're going to get to that in a bit, but on that particular tombstone of his sister, Dumbledore puts that verse, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Obviously, um, Dumbledore treasured her, and was affected by her, and was affected of that situation, and his heart really never left her in some ways, and that had an effect on how he lived his life. In fact, when you get into that part of the series and that part of the books, I don't want to spoil anything, but there there was a dramatic change in Dumbledore's trajectory, where he had to look at the desires of his own heart, and whether he would keep fulfilling the desires of his heart for fame and to become this great wizard, or else he was going, or if he was going to become a wizard who served others and put others first. I want to ask this: What would you see 
if you gazed in the mirror of Irised? What would that mirror reveal about the deepest desire of your own heart? What is it that controls your emotions more than anything else? That's how I like to think about it. When I think about what really controls my heart or what does my heart really treasure, I think about what will put me on an emotional roller coaster more than anything else. What affects my attitude? Is it success or failure? Is it, did I get something done? Is it criticism from something else? Is it what I think people think of me? And so if I mess up, I start spinning because of what someone else might think of me? What is it that sets that emotional roller coaster forward in my life? Whatever that is that tips me over, sends me toppling emotionally, there's some kind of clue, there's some kind of thread that leads back to what it is I actually desire at the deepest levels in my own heart. I was thinking about it when I was, was going over this message this week. Is there anything in this world that we can get more and more and more and more of to an infinite degree that ultimately just won't make us miserable? If we were to get the thing we want more and more and more and more to an infinite degree, wouldn't we actually get to a point where we'd be just miserable about it? We can think about the lower pleasures first, right? Like all this candy in front of us. You guys have been eyeing it. Some have been sampling. I'll allow it. If that's what we wanted more than anything else, and we ate and ate and ate and ate and ate to an infinite degree, it would kill us. Absolutely kill us. I think people who uh, strike it rich, who win the lotto, they have to fight this. That whole money thing, you know, we dream, we fantasize. what would I do if I won the lottery? I'd go buy a bunch of land and buy a bunch of toys and have a great time, right? But more money, more problems. I think even about human affection, to an infinite degree, wouldn't that get tiring and old? I see you, Aaron Talley. <laughs> I'm clean. I can be clingy. I'm just going to own it. <laughs> I can be clingy. Imagine that would never, something never letting go of you. Thinking about being so infatuated, so in love, that you couldn't do anything but pay attention to that one person that was the object of your soul. You wouldn't pay bills. You wouldn't work enough. You'd forget about everything else. Eventually, you'd be miserable. I think there's only one thing that we can have more and more and more and more of in this world to an infinite degree that won't eventually make us miserable in the end. And that's a relationship with Jesus. And I think the real promise of heaven isn't that we can get all the hamburgers and ice cream and pizza and not ever put any pounds. <laughs> the real promise of the kingdom of heaven isn't even that we'll get to see people that we've lost. I think the real promise of, of following Jesus and entering into this kingdom of heaven that he talks about so much is that we will be able to get the only thing that we can get more and more and more and more of that won't spoil or rot our souls. I think when Jesus shares that whole Matthew scripture in 621, he's trying to get us to see that all the stuff we treasure and fantasize in this world over, all that stuff, one, is going to rust and rot. But if all we ever focus on is the stuff of this world, that's going to make our souls rust and rot. 
There's only one thing we can have to an infinite degree that won't rust or rot our souls, and that's Jesus himself. He is the only true treasure that will preserve us now and forever. The last piece of wisdom we're going to look at today comes from the last book. And, and what it is, is Harry and Hermione, they're visiting Godric's Hollow, um, which is a very significant place to Harry and, and his story. And they come across a graveyard. This scene comes from the very last book, The Deathly Hollows, and it's very tender. Um, but the movie actually is quite different than what happens in the book. And so if I could, I'd like to read from you this scene and how um, J.K. Rowley saw it play out in the, in the book. And so this is the same scene, but this is what's actually written in the book. <clears throat> They're at the graveyard at Godric's Hollow, and Hermione's voice came out of the blackness for a third time, sharp and clear from a few yards away. Harry, they're here, right here. And he knew by her tone that it was his mother and father this time. He moved toward her, feeling as if something heavy were pressing on his chest, the same sensation he had had right after Dumbledore had died, a grief that had actually weighed on his heart and lungs. The headstone was only two rows behind Kendra's and Ariana's. It was made of the same white marble, just like Dumbledore's tomb, and this made it easy to read as it seemed to shine in the dark. Harry did not need to kneel or even approach very closely to it to make out the words engraved upon it. James Potter, born 27 March 1960, died 31 October 1981. Lily Potter, born 30 January 1960, died 31 October 1981. And written at the bottom, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Harry read the words slowly, as though he would have only one chance to take in their meaning, and he read them the last of them aloud. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. A horrible thought came to him, and with a kind of panic, isn't that a Death Eater idea? Why is that there? It doesn't mean defeating death in the way the Death Eaters mean it, Harry, said Hermione, her voice gentle. It means, you know, living beyond death, living after death. But they were not living, thought Harry. They were gone. The empty words could not disguise the fact that his parents' moldering remains lay beneath the snow and stone, indifferent and unknowing. And tears came before he could stop them, boiling hot, then instantly freezing on his face. And what was the point of wiping them off or pretending? He let them fall, his lips pressed hard together, looking down at the thick snow, hiding from his eyes the place where the last of Lily and James lay, bones now, surely, or dust. Not knowing or caring that their living son stood so near, his heart still beating, alive because of their sacrifice, and close to wishing at this moment that he was sleeping under the snow with them. See, Harry was old enough, and Harry had experienced enough suffering in his life to, to, uh, to not be spoiled by childlike naivety when it comes to death. Harry's just wrestling with a question we all have to ask and answer. Is there a life after this one, or is there not? How are we supposed to know, and how can we possibly believe? Harry's pain, the pain of his life, the pain of his suffering, was keeping him from believing that there was a higher power and a deeper magic behind the scenes, in charge and in control. His pain kept him from believing that there was a magic that could conquer death. 
and his pain kept him from believing that there was any hope beyond the material, physical world that he could get his hands on and manipulate. To him, that verse, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, it didn't sink home because of that pain and suffering. And I think for a lot of us, the, the hope of an afterworld, an afterlife, something beyond this life, we, we struggle with it intellectually, yes, but I think there's a struggle with it personally. That idea of how could there be a deeper magic in charge? How could there be this all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful God that's in charge of eternity and in charge of this thing called heaven when there's so much personal suffering in the world? What do you really think about this world and the next, if there is one? Have you reasoned that out? Have you a notion? See, the scripture on James and Lily Potter's tombstone, that one little verse at the end, actually becomes a part, it comes from a bigger verse that the Apostle Paul wrote in a letter to the Corinthians. And so I'm going to have them put the bigger context. I'm going to have uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 26. This is the bigger verse that that little verse comes from. And so we're going to read that right now. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 26 says this, All who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when Christ will turn the kingdom of God over to the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all of his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, the, the, the early followers, and, and, and I think really the, the, the Christian belief, the follower of Jesus' belief, isn't just this, this, this kind of fairy tale world of heaven, this idea that if you just do good enough things and you just say, I just believe in Jesus, you know, then you just get to punch this ticket that gets you into heaven. That's not the complete picture of the kingdom of heaven. And, and you get hints to it in this scripture, and we can, we can go read a lot more, and we probably need to just dedicate a whole Sunday around this idea, but if I could introduce to this idea today, at least, this idea that, that believing in Jesus and following Jesus isn't just about going to heaven, it's about heaven coming to earth. And so when Paul's talking about, and he's writing these people, he's saying all who belong to Jesus All who see themselves in Jesus, just like we kind of talked a little bit about earlier. Where is our hope? Where is the hope for our life? Is it in us? Are we putting our hope in our effort? Are we putting our hope in Jesus' effort? To belong to Jesus means to believe that he's actually alive still. It means to believe that he really was the son of God, who really did walk this earth, who really was crucified on a cross and who really did get up out of the grave, what we call resurrection. He came back to life. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive still. And as we follow him, we're really waiting for him to come back and to right all of the stinking wrongs that exist in this world. So our hope in facing 
even a darkness of death comes from not believing in ourselves, not from believing in others, but in belonging to Jesus. Because belonging to Jesus means believing we are irrevocably His. It means trusting that every enemy of Jesus, every entity that stands against Him, entities of abuse, oppression, injustice, slavery, greed, malpractice, all of those entities are going to be buried under the feet of Jesus when he comes back. And he is going to do all of that for us because of his unfailing love. Belonging to Jesus means believing that death isn't an ending, but a new beginning. And that we will start to experience the kingdom of heaven, not when we die and go to heaven, but right now. And we'll keep experiencing it to an infinite degree forever. If you're in the dark right now, if that's something you are struggling with, if darkness is very real to you, then, then, then we have to follow the deeper magic. We have to be willing to turn on the light or reach out to the light. And so I just want to suggest a small step today that could maybe start to put a crack in that darkness. We have a prayer team around here, and there's a way for you to just, with complete, um, completely anonymously, just to request prayer. Just to ask other people, a small group of people, not a big group of people, just a small group of people, and you can share your prayer with them. And so again, if you have our app, if you go to the connect section, there's a little connection card. It's a digital form. You just click on it, and there's a digital form there. And you can do this uh, now. You can do this when you leave. You can do this from home. But we'd love for you to just, there's a little prayer request section. And so if you have any prayer right now where you're like, God, this is just the darkest spot, the darkest corner in my life right now, and I just want some kind of light to shine on it, I would encourage you just to send that connection card in. Only a small group of people will see it but they will pray for you. They will bring the light of prayer into and on that situation so that you're not in it alone. Another thing you might want to do from here is to evaluate how much uh, time you get with your own mirror of irised. How much time do we spend on our phones? Is it possible to put the phone in our bedroom while, we, you know, like you get home from work and you just kind of keep it on you? You may, maybe just put it aside. Maybe put it on his charger and not touch it for an hour. See, what, see if the world keeps spinning. Or maybe it's just we're getting ready to go back into school, right? And so maybe we just all need to evaluate our screen, lim screen limits that we have with our kids and how much time we're watching because they're going to be back in school and then we're going to hit this new rhythm and we have to think about what are we going to want? More memories with our kids? Well, more chill time where I don't have to parent, don't have to be responsible because they're watching a screen and I'm watching a screen. You know, it's like, what, what are we going to want at the end? And so can we go through the short-term pain now of setting our screens aside and setting limits on our TV so that we get a longer-term benefit over the course of our lives? And then the last thing I might suggest today is if you're afraid of what it means to have this world end, if that whole death thing is scary to you, you know, um, I have a, a, a video 
and an article I'd love to share with you. Um, but the way you get it is, is I need you to sign up for our email list, just because I can't do that in this space right here, read a whole article, you know. But um, there's a pastor, a guy I follow a lot around here. His name's Timothy Keller. Um, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer last year, and he's been talking about his journey. He's still alive today, um, but he, I have an article from him, and I have a video interview of him too. And so if you get the emails, that's going to go out tomorrow um, on the email list. I'm going to embed that video and article in there. And it's just him talking about how do I as a pastor, you know, him speaking, you know, how does, how does a pastor who's counseled people over death and grieving for 40 years take their own medicine when you get your own sentence? And so that could be something that might interest you too. Um, but more than anything, um, I, I think for us and what I'd love for you to leave here today is, is just thinking about Jesus. Maybe that's the one step that you need to leave here today with. I think that's the one step we can, we can take with us no matter how young or experienced we are is, is what would it look like to fill my thoughts, to, feel, to fill my heart, to fill my mind with more thoughts about who Jesus is, what he really did in the time that he was here on earth, and, and what he's still doing now for us how we can have the power, he calls it the power of the Holy Spirit. It's this power that we can be in touch with, that we can connect with. And so we don't have to feel that we're ever in the dark completely because he's with us. So I'm just going to pray for us real quick. If you don't mind, just kind of just entering into just a moment here, just a moment of kind of silence, just to think as I pray here and say, God, I just, we're just here right now. We are thankful that we can have this space in the here and now, in this reality. We have this physical world to sit here in. But I just ask you to help us understand that this physical world is not the only world. In fact, it's, it's not even the main world. It's just a prequel to greater things to come. And so we just ask for your power. We just ask for your Holy Spirit to touch our hearts, to inform our minds, to mend our relationships, to speak to our souls that we need to hear you. You are the hope that we have, Father, that you look down and you see us and you are overwhelmed with love and you are overwhelmed even with grief in a way, because you see how much we are hurting. You see how much we need you, even if we are unaware of it. And so I just pray for an awareness, an awareness of all that you've done. I just pray for an awareness of how you are making yourself available to us in just the smallest, littlest things in any day that we have, any day that we might experience, that you are the God who is with us. And I just pray that we can find the light, no matter how dark it seems. Amen.